Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we continue our look on the <clears throat> a look at the deacon, the forgotten leader in the church. Two weeks ago we discussed the deacon standard. And the deacon standard was the text that discussed the character qualifications that the Lord calls upon for a potential deacon to have. <clears throat> this morning, though, we now move on and look at the deacon's family, the deacon's family. And because of the similarities between the call for the deacon and the call for elders in this area, I want to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. So please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, now beginning at verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer, an elder then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are above reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And seeing that it was good, he created man and woman, male and female, husband and wife. Together, to fulfill God's purposes, they then produced children and became a family. In the beginning of time, at the commencement of the Old Testament, God instituted that family as a means for spreading his truth and creating a holy people. At the continuation of time, at the commencement of the New Testament, God instituted the church as a means for spreading his truth to create a holy people. It's interesting that the world takes a family and makes them strangers, while the church, ideally, takes strangers and makes them family. In the past couple weeks, I spent much time thinking about the connection between the church and the family between the institution of the family and the institution of the church. I cannot yet say that my thoughts are fully formed or fully clarified on the topic, but the conclusion that I have come to is that the church and the family are indivisible. For the purposes of God to be fulfilled, each needs one another. 
The institution of the church needs the institution of the family, and the institution of the family needs the institution of the church. A church without family lacks moral clarity, and a family without church lacks moral purpose. A family pictures one's relationship with the Lord. Husband and wife, bound together in marriage, they give a picture of what it means to be the bride of Christ. And children picture one's adoption into the family of God. Without the family, the church lacks the picture, that picture of moral clarity. On the other side, though, a family without the church lacks a moral purpose. A family that is not part of the church has little purpose because it is divorced from the intentions of the Lord. A family without the church fails to receive instruction in the things of the Lord and thus fails to fulfill the things of the Lord. And so I say a church without family lacks moral clarity and a family without a church lacks moral purpose. I would also say that a church without family lacks continuity, while a family without a church lacks accountability. By the family, the Lord ensures the continuation of his word and of his work and of his will. One generation teaching the next generation. For the family, the church is the Lord's means for providing instruction and correction in the word of God. By the work of the Spirit, what happens in the church brings about conviction and repentance and transformation. I don't think the two can be separated. The church cannot be divorced from the family, and the family cannot be divorced from the church. It's no surprise, then, that in a discussion about the church, we also find ourselves in a discussion about the family. In fact, service in the church is tied to service in the family. To qualify to lead in the church, one must first lead well in the family. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. A look at the leader's family. We've been here already because we've looked at the elder, but now it's repeated, but this time for the deacon. If one is to be faithful in the church, he must prove himself faithful in the family. And so I want us to notice three ways this morning in which that faithfulness is expressed. I want you to note first the faithfulness of a wife. The faithfulness of a wife. In this section, the qualifications of deacons, this first point of discussion isn't actually about deacons at all. Rather, it's about his wife. Through his word, the Lord is called on them, saying, verse 11, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. While pastors and elders and even deacons are functioning in a ministry, their spouses carry a heavy burden with them. Even in those matters that must be kept private, she will exhort and encourage him to walk according to the word. She will lift him up in prayer, and she will carry some of the burdens in the home and with the children in order to enable him to fulfill his role in ministry. Therefore, who she is is just as important as who he is. Her faithfulness is seen in these various characteristics found in verse 11. Dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. But before we can even discuss those character traits, there's another discussion that has to be had first. 
who is the deacon's wife mentioned here? If everything's gone according to plan, she's the wife of a deacon. Pretty obvious. But if you guys were to compare your Bibles with one another, you would find that in some of your translations, it says wives, and in other translations, it says women. So it could mean women in general, or it could mean the wife of a deacon. And so there becomes a debate here about what is specifically in view with this particular text. What is Paul trying to bring about by his words? The Greek word used here for wife is a general word. It can mean either women or it can mean a wife, specifically depending upon the context. If you look at verse 12, the very next verse, we'll see that same Greek word again when it says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So the word for wife in that verse and the word for wives in verse 11 are the same word, other than the fact that one is plural. But in verse 12, almost everybody agrees it should be translated wife. But verse 11 brings about a discrepancy. <laughs> Clearly in verse 12, it is best translated as wife based on the context. You could say that the deacon should be a husband of one woman, but it would be more precise to say the husband of one wife. But we don't have that kind of clarity in verse 11. And so some choose to translate it wives, while others choose to translate it women. So what is the best use of the word here? Really, the verse could take on one of three meanings. At the most basic level, it can refer to women in general. But that hardly seems to be the answer because the context of this passage is talking about deacons. We see this in the verses preceding it, verses 8 through 10. And then the verse following it, verse 13, and even verse 12, says deacons as well. Few of us would really stop mid-sentence to switch topics and then return to what we were originally discussing. In all of Paul's letters, he always has this logical flow of content with one topic flowing into another. And when there is really a switch, a switch in topics, then he makes it clear by transitioning to something new. And, and so he doesn't go back and forth like we see here. So it doesn't make sense that this refers to just women because it doesn't make sense that Paul would begin talking about deacons, insert a quick comment about women in general, and then return to talk about deacons. And so there's this view then that this doesn't refer to women in general, but specifically that it refers to wives of deacons. Since this is a term used for wives, it's not out of line to translate it that way. And since Paul talks about deacons on both sides of that verse, these women must somehow have a connection to the deacon that's in view here. And so it makes sense that it's their wives. But if that's correct, that leaves us with another question. Why would there be qualifications for deacons' wives? Because there were no qualifications for elders' wives in the previous section. Nowhere else is there a mention of elders' wives' qualifications. And specifically, there's no mention in verses 1 through 7. That leads us to the third option, that Paul is building a case for deaconesses. Notice how verse 11 begins. Likewise. Likewise, their wives. Remember that when Paul transitions from one topic to the next, he's very clear. 
He often does this by using the word likewise. If you look at verse 8, you will see that he does that when he transitions from elders to deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. And so it's thought that he's doing the same thing here. As he moved from elders to deacons, now he's just transitioning from deacons to this one phrase about deaconesses. He even writes the same way. Verse 8, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And then if you look at verse 11, it says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So in both instances, he calls attention to them. And then he gives this list of qualifications. But where would this role for deaconess come from? Because we really don't see it in Scripture. The answer that people go to for that is Romans 16.1. And it's there in Romans 16.1, we're told of the testimony of the woman Phoebe. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrae. Remember that that word deacon simply means servant. And so the word chosen here or chosen in Romans 16.1 to describe Phoebe a servant is actually that word deacon. But just because an author uses the Greek word deacon to describe a servant doesn't mean that person holds that title. Epaphras is called a servant in Colossians 1.7. And in our next chapter in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, Timothy will be called a servant. But both of them hold other roles. Neither of them is considered a deacon in an official capacity in the churches that they're serving. So we can't necessarily assume that Phoebe was a deaconess. It would have been much easier if Paul would have simply used the word deaconess to make things clearer. But that word deaconess wouldn't exist for several centuries later. So it's not even available to Paul to use. If it had been, maybe this text would be clearer. So here's where I land on this. First, I believe this refers to the wives of the deaconesses, of the deacons. If Paul had meant to speak to a whole separate office of deaconesses, I think there would have been a way to do that without the word deaconesses even. And it would have probably been separated from this section of deacons. So I'm fairly confident that he's talking about their wives because there must be a connection for him to mention deacons and then mention them. However, it is clear that they must have some sort of official capacity or official role in the church. Otherwise, there would be no need for them to have a list of qualifications. The reality is there are ways to minister to women in which it's sometimes better to have women doing the ministering. I could probably throw a baby shower for Bethany. I think I could do a decent job of it. But it would probably look a whole lot different than what it's going to look like. A woman's influence can sometimes make a lot of difference. So that's where I stand, that a, the man, woman mentioned here is the wife of a deacon exercising an official role in the church. Because of the lack of clarity, though, neither will I fault those who do something different, either those who choose to have deaconesses or not have them, as long as they take the full counsel of God's will and God's word and remain aligned to that. So if there are deacons, deaconesses, 
And they have to meet qualifications. Not just the qualifications mentioned in our verse, but you have to go back to chapter 2, where it says that Paul and, and God do not permit women to have authority over men or to teach. We should always remember that, that when there's a lack of clarity and when we might see some leeway on something, it still must be kept in line with the rest of God's word. And so in this case, whether you take women as referring to deaconesses or women as referring to the wives of deacons, what follows is still meant to be lived out. And just as the qualifications for elders and, and deacons are necessary and beneficial for all men, the list here is worthwhile for every woman. Actually, her character is not to be that much different than an elder or deacon. She's to be dignified, not slanderous but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Each of those are things we have covered as we've looked at the character of elders and deacons. There's no need to go over them in great detail once again. But I would simply say it this way or sum it up this way. She is to be sound in speech, sound in mind, and sound in character. As a child of God, this is a call for her to reflect the character of God. There's no major surprise about who she is called to be. Because that's simply just a call to godliness. That is a call for every believer, male or female, whether serving officially or not, to be godly. That's why the qualifications, the character of qualifications, should be so familiar to us. It's a call for everybody, so it's going to get repeated at the call of leadership specifically. They identify a Christian's behavior. One who loves God will glorify God by living out the character of God. I think of a child who loves his mother and father so much that what does that child do? He or she will imitate the parents. Loving the parents so much and not knowing otherwise, the child will seek to do and be like the parents. The faithfulness of a deacon's wife is seen here in her desire to, to imitate her heavenly father. As one who is called to serve in the Lord's house, they are called to do so with the Lord's character. The church is supposed to be a reflection of who God is. And how does it reflect God? By its people, which begins with those serving in leadership. They are the most visible, representing the Lord, and to do so accurately, they must do so with godliness. These are the qualifications for anyone serving in the body of Christ. And so it's no surprise to see the same characteristics listed for the offices of leadership within the church. But we see it supplied specifically here to the deacon's wife, or deaconess, depending how you interpret that. After this brief interlude, on the deacon's wife. Verse 12 then returns back to the deacon and returns our attention back to him in his own qualifications. And it reads, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And so after considering the, the faithfulness of a wife in verse 11, I want you to now note second, the faithfulness of a husband. The faithfulness of a husband. It's seen in that first part of verse 12. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Every person serves a variety of roles. A woman is not just a woman. 
But depending on the circumstances of her life, she is a wife, a mother, and perhaps even a grandmother. She may also be a secretary or a teacher or any other number of job titles. The same is true for a man, but he also will have various roles. He may be an engineer or a truck driver, but he is also a husband and a father and the provider of the family. Here, he is called upon in his role of husband, and that is placed above his role as deacon if he chooses to go that direction. And only the one who has first proven himself faithful in the care of his own bride is qualified to then care for the bride of Christ. This phrase, husband of one wife, it brings us then back to verse 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 3, amidst those notable qualifications of an elder. That's where we find it used first. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. And then it goes on. Once again, seeing the same character listed for two different roles, it's not surprising. Because it's just consistent with modeling godliness. And so we would expect leaders, regardless of offers, called to care for the bride of Christ, would care for their own bride first. But as it did when we discussed elders, it brings us to this question, what does it mean, husband of one wife? And because we've already discussed this in great detail when we talked about verse 2, there's no need for me to get into significant detail here. But it is worth remembering some key points. And I'm just briefly share with you some points. If you want more information or the deeper discussion, you can go back to listen to the message on it's either October 1st or October 8th. There are three options to interpreting this verse. The first is to see it as forbidding polygamy. Though that certainly goes against the Lord's will and it should disqualify somebody from leadership, polygamy was not a common thing in Paul's era. So it's unlikely that Paul is writing against polygamy at this point. The other interpretation is that it just forbids single men from serving in leadership. But again, taking in the whole counsel of God's word, we see elsewhere that Paul commends singleness to the Corinthians and says that is a good thing. So it seems hardly like he would limit them from being in service, in leadership then. So that seems unlikely as well. And that takes us to the last option, which is divorce. That this is a reference to divorce, forbidding a divorced man to serve as a deacon. But then that leads us to the discussion of what kind of divorce? What are the parameters? Some people will say divorce is never permissible. And so divorced men cannot serve in leadership. Others will say that scripture makes allowances for divorce under certain circumstances. So if the divorce falls within those parameters, then he's not disqualified. Those allowances, those parameters, by the way, are usually infidelity or desertion. We don't have time to dissect all of that right now. But I think at the very least, we have to say that if somebody is qualified in all the other areas, then the strictest view is a divorced man is not qualified. And at the broadest view, he is qualified only if his divorce falls within those two parameters. But I think instead of debating about what is permissible, we need to be asking whether it is wise or not to have a divorced person in leadership because it increases that possibility 
of accusations, which then impacts the qualification of not being above reproach. And we can talk about this for all the lengths of time, but I think in doing so, we get derailed from the true intention of the text, which is the care of a deacon for his wife. In the qualifications for elders, Paul puts it this way to, to Titus, that he's to be faithful to his wife, at least according to some translations. As God created the heavens and the earth, he created the family to be that central structure of the earth. The family is the most basic unit on which society is built. And so stability in the family leads to stability in the society. And when you destabilize a family, you destabilize society. Therefore, one's leadership in the family becomes a qualification for leadership in the church. And it begins by being a faithful husband. What does it mean to be a faithful husband? It means love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And love the, your wives as their own bodies. Because he who loves his wife loves himself, as Paul writes to the Ephesians. Peter describes it more specifically. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To be faithful to one's wife is to walk in love towards her. This means leading her towards the Lord, teaching her the truths of the Lord, that she may be discerning rather than deceived. And it means shepherding and stewarding her on behalf of the Lord. One who does not love his wife in this way won't love the church in this way. Sin has consequences, always impacting others. A deacon and any leader who is placed into the role of leadership is called upon and qualified by his love for his wife. And if he fails to do that, the consequences impact not just her, it impacts the church. In the last couple of weeks, Bethany and I have received two different, or word of two different families who have had to withdraw from ministry because of family issues, specifically between husbands and wives. These were circumstances that span several different cultures, several different continents, shows that anyone can fall. They were all respectable people. They were in significant positions, not just in ministry, but also in the secular world. The consequences impact not just the husband and the wife. It impacts their children. It impacts their church. It impacts their ministries. It impacts the unbelievers with whom they've built a testimony. And in an indirect way, it actually impacts some of you, though you have never met any of these people or even know who I'm talking about. This little phrase, husband and one wife, is significant. Leaders, in the case of deacons here, are to model faithfulness to Christ, which begins by modeling faithfulness to one's own wife. <coughs> and so we see the faithfulness of a wife and the faithfulness of a husband. But verse 12 brings about another qualification by drawing attention from the role in the family to another role in the family. From the one who is a potential deacon as a husband, but also as a father. That's why I want you to note third, the faithfulness of a father. The faithfulness of a father. Look at what it says in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, 
managing their children and their own households well. Once again, this just carries over from what we've seen with elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. It says of a potential elder, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so what is said here simply carries over for those who might find themselves as deacons as well. The consistency of these qualifications should tell us something important about leadership. And it's something I've said from the beginning. To lead well in the church, one must lead well in the home. We often speak of the Christian life as one of consistency, seeking to be like Christ in all circumstances at all times. We speak often of the reality that it is inappropriate for a professing believer to be one person on Sunday at church and then another person the rest of the week. We all know that to be wrong. Verse 12 is merely an application of that principle. A potential deacon should be consistent in his behavior in the home and in the church. We might be able to mask it for a time, but true character is always revealed. And so the deacon who is not managing his own household well exposes areas in which he lacks godliness. And what he's showing is how he will eventually manage the affairs of the church. There needs to be evidence of godliness in the home. Notice for the elder, his reputation of godliness is seen in the home in verse 4, but it also extends outside of the home in verse 7. He is to be well thought of by outsiders, it says. It's actually a more well-rounded view of who he is because it's viewing who the elder is inside the home and outside the home. But we don't see that here with deacons. But I think to manage the household well is actually the strictest of requirements. Most people will behave better in public than they will in private. The best evaluation of someone and the best evaluation of ourselves is not who we are outside the home, but who we are inside the home. So the requirement to manage one's household well, it's a more strict requirement. That leaves us then needing to know what that looks like. To understand that, I want to focus on the father's relationship with his children. And I'll sum it up this way, that the faithfulness of a father is seen in the father who disciples, disciplines, and directs his children towards the Lord. This morning we read from Psalm 78, and in it we read verses 2 through 5. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell, to the, tell them to the upcoming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. In multiple times, in multiple ways, you should notice what you see there, that each generation is learning the things of God from the previous generation. This assumes that fathers are teaching their children. This flows from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, which urges fathers to be disciplers of their children, not just teaching them the law, but teaching them how to walk in it, teaching them how, to, how it applies. Most importantly, though, a father just does not just teach his children to do the word of God, but to love it. This is critical because the one who loves it will follow it. And will love it because he sees God's goodness in it. And how the Lord uses his law to protect his people. 
And then when they fail to walk in it, fail to follow the instructions of the Lord, then the Father disciplines them. We all know the verse from Proverbs 13, 24. It says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. But Ephesians 6, 4 takes this a little more specifically. It says, fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's not just discipline for the discipline's sake, but to discipline them in the things of the Lord. And by discipline, a father then is directing his children causing them to see who God is and desiring to seek after him instead of themselves. Ultimately, it is the Lord's work to call people to himself. However, there are repeated testimonies of how the Spirit has used the faithfulness of a father to draw children to faith. And on the opposite side, the testimony is also true that the unfaithfulness of fathers often leads people away from the faith, leads children away from the faith. If you remember back to when I preached this in discussing about elders, the example I gave you was a comparison between the American Puritan Jonathan Edwards and the criminal Max Jukes. While one produced a lineage of respectable people, those who were great contributors to society, the other produced a consistent line of criminals. Children are imitators and will imitate their fathers. We just talked about that a little bit ago. This is why I speak much of the breakdown of society and that when the breakdown of society comes from the breakdown of family. But I think most of that breakdown comes from breaking the roles and influence of the fathers. And I think statistics will bear that out. That a lack of a father's influence contributes to a lack of direction and character in youth. For the church, this becomes a point because... The home is a proving ground for any church office. A church is built in the home, so leadership must begin at home. Vodibakama said, <clears throat> The church does not meet as often as the home. Thus, if Christ is to be worshipped daily, it is incumbent upon the home to play an important spiritual role. Consequently, fathers as heads of households are thrust into a pastoral role. When we speak of the role of fathers, he is to be faithful by leading his children toward faith in Christ. This is the faithfulness of a father. As we read scripture, family is regularly taught as a topic. I'm not sure there's a single book in the Bible that does not teach about family, whether directly or indirectly. I'm sure there's not a single book that doesn't give some sort of insight into the family life. The prevalence of family in the scriptures should speak to how critical the family is to the plan of the Lord, and thus how serious it is to God should determine how serious it is to us. The family is not only the means by which God builds society, but it's the means by which he builds the church, teaching one generation to the next generation. When Israel passed over the Jordan River, the Lord instructed them to place 12 stones in the river, not only to remember the event, but to remember to teach their children about the event. Joshua 4, 21 through 24 says, And he said to the people of Israel, 
When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I'm teaching one generation to the next, and that's always been the plan of the Lord. He told Israel, you shall teach them to your children, talking of these things when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That continues today. Today he tells fathers to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The family is how the Lord builds his church. Therefore, if one is not building his family, he's not building the church. Which is why to lead in the church, one needs to lead his family. For the potential of deacon, there are three areas evaluated. The faithfulness of a wife, the faithfulness of a husband, and the faithfulness of a father. There's a secular example that actually affirms the truths taught by this passage. And that's the arena of politics. I don't care what you subscribe to, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. Our political system is a disaster. But we've done it to ourselves by not evaluating a candidate's character. To the Lord, character is key. It's the key element over other criteria, and we fail to take that to heart. At the center of that criteria is family. How someone leads his family indicates how he will lead the people. And how he treats the family shows how he will treat people. A few weeks ago, I shared an example about Richard Nixon. And I'll offer another example here. It's funny because he was so smitten with, with Pat that on weekends he would volunteer to drive her to dates with other men. That he would do so just so he could spend time with her. And so... He would pick her up and he would drive her into the big city, Los Angeles or the surrounding city is by it, so that she'd go spend time with her friends, spending time with other guys. And finally, he won her over. <clears throat> At the beginning, as Richard Nixon was approached to run for various positions, he would consult Pat about her opinion. But as the years went by, and especially after his first loss of that presidential election, she was really ready to get out. It had taken its toll on her and her children. And yet, Richard Nixon continued on. He consulted her less and less and simply made the determination of what to do. His ambition outweighed her desires and needs. If he was willing to overlook the desires and needs of his own family, what do you think that means for his relationship with others? That he probably overlooked their desires and needs too. The hard attitude is what led to those other scandals. I share Nixon only as an example because I've recently finished a biography on him. But you can look across the history of presidents of any political party affiliation and see that to be true. But now you take that political example and apply it to the church, and you get the same outcome. That's what the Lord is addressing here. 
and overcoming by verses 11 and 12 in the third chapter of Timothy. The standard for serving as a deacon is the standard of the family. Let's pray. Our Father God, we proclaim your goodness and your perfection repeatedly, Lord. And yet only if we would take it to heart, what you say in your word is really true and live it out. We would avoid the chaos that we see in the church and in the culture and in society, Lord. And so, Father, I pray first we would take heart and see this in the context of looking at deacons, Lord. May we look upon your word and, and see what that means for leadership in the church. But, Father, I pray that we would see that extended elsewhere, both into our own lives and into the other areas of the culture, Lord. Father, may we see your truth prevail and may we seek to live it out first and foremost because it is the perfect will, the perfect way. And as long as we're walking in that, we see your faithfulness prevail, Lord. And so, Father, cause us to trust you and rely on you in all situations and circumstances by seeing that walking in godliness is how we draw nearer to you. We thank you for all that you do in this day. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.